Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today's discussion is with Dr. Pamela Lowe. Pam's in practice in Chicago, Chicagoland area, and we had a conversation about myopia control and preventative medicine with the ability to detect macular degeneration early and treat myopia really effectively. It's a great conversation. I think there's a lot of ideas in here that will help you in your practices. It definitely helped me in mine. So please enjoy our conversation. And as always, if you want to get the most current episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. Chris, how long ago did you start this? So I, um, I had an idea to do this um, a couple years ago. I really wanted to have it. It really started out with uh, the idea with like sort of a fireside discussion with people in our, our profession who have really worked hard legislatively to allow me to practice the way I practice. Oh, cool. And, um, and so, but really the outlet for it started for me, um, in early January, I was really trying to find a different for, and it specifically was with vision source because I was trying to find a way to be able to communicate ideas, um, that were going on throughout vision source across the country to my members okay. uh, in Nebraska and South Dakota. And then it sort of spread from there where, you know, I like, we have listeners across the country now and, um, and I think, well, we have more listeners in, in other states that are not in Nebraska and even though we have a significant number. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, a couple of months ago is when I actually started doing this. And that has sort of now then um, through the test of concept and through figuring out how to do it all, um, I've started another one to actually have those discussions with the people in our profession. I get to stand on their, on their shoulders, you know? Oh, cool. And so that's been a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. So tell me, you've, you've been on a couple other podcasts. Tell me those experiences. Yeah. So it's been pretty fun. My very first one was with uh, women in optometry. And we mm-hmm. actually talked about what I felt were the three pillars um, of being successful, which were advocacy, education, and practice management. So I talked about mm-hmm. important to be part of AOA, important to you know keep up with uh, evidence-based science and research and how I belong to Academy and then, of course, Vision Source was my practice management buzz and how I love being with colleagues that are smarter than I am and, and get to share uh, with them when we all get together and at our, especially at our exchange. So just talked about that. It was, it was, uh, it went really well. And then, um, got to do this one with MMD, WebMD. So yeah, just in the past, like, six weeks, eight weeks is when I, yeah. when I, when I've done this. So it, it's just really funny. So I have a 28 year old and a 23 year old. And so after I, uh-huh. I did the first one, you know, they sent me the link and it was, um, you know, emails out to all the docs. So I just forwarded it to my sons. I'm like, Hey, I did my first podcast. And my oldest son was hilarious. He, he uh, calls me up and he goes, mom, that means you're an authority. You've done a podcast. So I'm like, seriously, <laughs> 31 years practicing. And now I'm with an authority because I did a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Cause he just loves podcasts. That's how he gets all his information. So It's interesting. You know, I, I, um, I love them too. I, I'm a little bit older than your son, but um, I, I just devour them. And, and I, and I think, I think I've articulated this to a, a few other guests, but maybe not, um, not on like, you know, actually on a call or on a, on a discussion, but it's, it's like we have these, there's very, and that's one of the reasons that, that vision source has been so wonderful for our practice is that it gives us a forum 
for kind of deep dives into these discussions where we typically don't have. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think I love podcasts so much, sort of a long form podcast where you can actually delve deeper into an idea mm -hmm. and, um, and sort of explore that idea. And that's not, and, and even with people that you like you where you may not completely agree or you're made just trying to be like wrapping your mind around an idea. Right. And so those kind of conversations I just really love. And, and I think that's why I like having them within our profession is that it, it allows me time instead of just sort of like, um, you know, when we get together with colleagues, a lot of time it's like, you know, there's not a lot of time to just sit and sort of let your mind wander on different ideas. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's why I love listening to them. And I hope that that's kind of what we're doing with, with this as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I yeah. find myself listening more now to, um, um, books on tape and podcasts when I work mm -hmm. out instead of music. And it's awesome because yeah. you get a good workout and you're getting information actually, instead of just yes. you know songs you already have, you know, heard a million times. Yeah. Have you ever listened? One of the podcasts is, that's my favorite. It's called Business Wars. I think you'd like it. Oh, I'll have to write that down. It's, um, it's very well done. And they basically take a, six episodes. They cover two episodes a week. So they, through a season, quote unquote, would, would encompass about three weeks. Mm -hmm. And um, and they'll pick a topic of of like the one they, they, they're doing right now is Mattel and Hasbro. Okay. So they're looking at how these two toy companies kind of developed and then compete or competitors and how they, you know, one up each other. And, you know, they do all sorts of Nike and Adidas. They did um, Apple and, and Microsoft. I mean, there's probably like 17 seasons wow. where they've gone through this. And anyway, it's just fascinating to see um, kind of how those companies develop and, and you really get a background for it. So anyway, from a business standpoint, yeah. I think you might enjoy that. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll definitely look that up. Yeah. And then I want to definitely listen to your, your, your um, other podcasts. <laughs> Make sure yes, I do that. I'm yeah, actually traveling tomorrow, so that'll be great. I'm oh, cool. Plane. Well, yeah, I'll um, <laughs> awesome. Well, I um, so I think I think one of the things, Pam, that I was really hoping to dig a little deeper in with you, and and anytime you know, I, I want you to know that if if I if I kind of um, push back on any ideas, it's not because I I, could, I disagree with them necessarily. It's just that I've either I've heard some some ideas. You know, my right. myopia control, for example, we do it in our practice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, but I, there's this huge resistance to, um, I think there we're seeing within, you know, within vision source, we tend to have people that kind of uptake things earlier, mm -hmm. but, um, and I, th I think that's true with myopia control as well. But in general, I think there's this, th there's a lot of kind of pushback with, um, okay, it's there. Okay. I can do it. But how do I really implement it in our, in my practice? And also, is it really necessary? Like, like, is it really necessary? So like, if we're talking and I do that, I mean, it's not as out of disrespect or any of that kind of stuff. I just want to explore some of those ideas um, that sure. I've heard that are kind of on the opposing side of it. Sure. No. Um, so with that, I guess we'll start out with myopia control. So kind of give me a, a sense of um, now that you're on the, um, this committee for myopia control, how did you, how did they select you? What, what kind of things have you done historically with orthokeratology and multifocal contacts and medications. What's your, what's your background? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when the study started coming out, you know, the, like around 2009, 2010, I started reading about the studies on myopia, how, the increase in prevalence, um, how it really, you know, high myopia is really um, a, more of a, a uh, disease state than a refractive state. Um, 
I started just reading mm-hmm. more of the articles, and then I initially got into distant center soft multifocal lenses because that was kind of a, an easier way, an easier path, um, mm-hmm. you know, more comfortable lens for patients, something to offer patients where I started seeing um, them progress more than a half a diopter you know, a year. So started offering that to patients. And then just in the past few years, reading more of the studies with low dose atropine. And then um, mm-hmm. back then, I first started with distance center soft multifocals and then did started dabbling in ortho K. Um, but I found mm-hmm. that the younger my patients, sometimes the overnight wear was not um, amenable for parents that kind of scared them a little bit, the thought of a hard lens and them sleeping it. So, um, again, really cut my teeth with the soft distance center multifocals and then quickly moved into orthokeratology as I took younger associates on too. They had learned about it in school and were a little bit more gung-ho. Um, so we started creating a couple years ago a protocol. And what was really mm-hmm. neat is the research kept coming out and, and then I read about low-dose atropine. I'm like, oh my gosh, especially for um, the younger myopes and where parents are really kind of reticent about contact lens where either soft or rigid. Now I have this other great option that doesn't have all the side effects of higher dose atropine. Mm-hmm. And it's another tool I can have for my parents to really champion um, the reduction of myopia. And we know by current studies, we could do that f- about 50% of the time. And when you look at the numbers, you know, by 2050, we're going to have almost 5 billion myopes. And by that time, mm-hmm. 2050, 1 billion of them will be high myopes. And, you know, we categorize a high myope of minus five and over. And, you know, I just seeing more, we're all seeing more and more people with these um, increase um, in, in refractive errors that are so high. And knowing now with good science and, and studies, we have that a minus five or higher diopter myope as an adult will get myopic macular degeneration at a higher rate, yeah. retinal detachment, glaucoma, early onset cataract. And so as a primary care provider, how awesome is it now that I have good science to tell me, hey, I need to be on the front of, uh, of prevention here? Well, I think the crazy part is, so I think there's a couple of things. First, is it's it's always challenging if I'm if I'm going to kind of um, listen to what some people on the other side might say is it's challenging to know who is going to progress and how rapidly they're going to progress. So what are the sort of indicators that you're looking for, uh, or are you looking for any indicators in terms of when you're going to start talking about myopia control of, for, with your patients? Yeah. So you know, again, through good evidence-based science, we know the risk factors. So mm-hmm. we know if you have a family history right? One parent is a click in the column, two parents double click, yep. right? Uh, we know ethnicity. If you're of Asian descent, um, that that's going to put you at higher risk, especially Chinese, Korean, Japanese, uh, people from Singapore is going to put them at a, at a much higher risk um, in that population. Um, we know that the earlier the onset of myopia, that you're greater risk of becoming a higher myope. And we also know that before you become nearsighted, outdoor activities mm-hmm. help delay the onset of higher myopia. And we know if we can delay the onset, again, the chances of the myopia being greater is going to be less. And we also know that if you have um, a, a, a poor lag of accommodation or an ESO posture, that that's going to put you higher risk. So we know all these things that definitely put patients at higher risk. 
And when we look at those as a whole, we are able to calculate in our mind, have a formula Mm -hmm. that, wow, you know, your child is, you know, X age, they should be in a certain range of prescription. They're definitely not falling there yet. They're not quite myopic yet, but less hyperopic than they should be. Let's play outside more than inside. We know after the child converts to uh, become myopic that it doesn't matter if they play outside more than inside. But again, if we can delay the onset, Mm -hmm. we can delay the degree of myopia. Do you, um, so then is it sort of a discussion that you're having with all kids, like a a general discussion with all parents and their kids who are early onset or, or even just onset of nearsightedness? Or are you looking for a specific number of jump before you're really starting to have the conversation of that? Yeah, great question, Chris. I absolutely have changed my thought process with that. I actually discuss it with myopic parents before they Mm. even have kids. Mm. (laughs) I've started to do that. I just had a long time um, um, husband and wife. They're 31 years old, both of them. Uh, They came in for twin spin eye exams uh, (laughs) one Saturday in the practice. I love when I get married couples who come (laughs) in together. And um, she shared with me that they're going to start. you know, thinking of having a family and they were going to really put their efforts toward that. Well, she's a minus 450 mm-hmm. myope and he's about a minus 350. So guess what discussion yep. I had with them right off the bat, you know, mm. discussed everything we just talked about. Boy, your child's going to have a higher risk. Let's make sure we'll get them in for their infancy exam. We're going to track them closely and make sure they play outside more than inside before any nearsightedness hits. Um, So I certainly, I I share it with parents before their parents or thinking about becoming parents. I share it with grandparents um, because we have, you know, I'm in that grandparent age group population of baby Mm -hmm. boomers, right? Where my kids are older and may start having kids soon. And a lot of my patients are grandparents. And how awesome is that for me to be able to share? Hey, you know, you're nearsighted. I know I used to see your kids. Uh, they're nearsighted. And you told me you have, you're a grandparent now. Have that discussion with them. But certainly every parent that comes in with their children. Um, I really talk about the about myopia management because I don't yeah. want them hearing about yeah. it someplace else. Uh, one of the things we pride ourselves in our practice is patients always should leave knowing more about their eyes and their eye health and what's going on in the eye world than when they came in. So, um, you know, so to that point, we like to just throw those tidbits of education out so that they hear it from us first and then can be more inquisitive as things progress later. Well, it's it's a shift in, in thinking about um, managing disease when it presents as opposed to managing the risk factor for disease well in advance. I mean, it, you know, it goes back to some of our ability, and we'll talk about this with, with macular degeneration, I'm sure, later on in our discussion. But, sure. um, you know, it, it's, um, it's the idea of, of trying to be – I know it's all – everybody's moving toward preventative medicine, or that's sort of the overarching thing that you'll hear with a lot of just the medical journals uh, in general. But, um, but it is a real shift in thinking about trying to do things for patients, um, especially with refractive error. I mean, like to, like you said, to really think of, of refractive error as not a vision problem, but as a medical problem, as a disease state, um, is, is a total shift in thinking. Absolutely. What had to happen for you, Pam, to start to feel like that? Besides, you know, besides the evidence, usually people have sort of this aha moment. They can think back and I can think like, like from a meibomian gland standpoint, for me, I can tell you exactly where my eyes were just like, 
uh, my mind was blown. Um, same thing with like Demodex. Like there was these these periods where I think like, okay, boom. Well, like for you with myopia management, was there something that you just sort of like you looked at all the evidence, all of a sudden you're just like, ah, oh, I got to do this. Right. Yeah. And the great point. My So my aha moment was um, a longtime patient went on to have a large retinal tear. Been seeing him for years. He's a retired Chicago fireman. Um, he's about a minus 850 myope. Uh, came in saying, you know, I'm seeing more floaters, caught this large retinal tear, and thank God he came in because we caught it early. Mm -hmm. And then his daughter, both daughters are high myopes, and one of his daughters actually used to work in our practice. So that was really my aha moment, like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. now knowing what we know, if I if I had him, you know, you know, in a time machine and took him back and was able to have him be under a minus five diopter myope by yep. the means we now know we have. How awesome is that? We could have avoided um, a major retinal condition. Yeah. So, you know, you know, just our, the whole way optometry has shifted from the 80s when I was in training and we just were able to use diagnostic medications. Um, and then um, in 1995 in Illinois, we were able to use uh, therapeutics. Um, we started becoming more of that medical model and being primary care, it's all about prevention. So this is yep. right in our wheelhouse. Again, to your point, we don't wait for things to happen anymore. We, we're on that proactive end and it's through an educated patient. I always tell my patients, the more I could educate you, the more it empowers you and I to work as a team so that our goal is to, for you to see until you don't need to see anymore. Yep, so, right. you know, we, we, like, we like to say we see um, all ages. We see from cradle to coffin. And my job is to get you seen in 2020 until you're not here anymore. Well, so, you know, that kind of leads into, I mean, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. But one of the things that I think that is a, is a challenge and, and not, again, not so much with vision source practices, but I think there are docs out there that when, when they look at like, they look at the preponderance of things they're doing is already so far and above the standard of care. I mean, even just like, like, um, you know, retinal imaging, OCT technology, I know that, uh, that it, it still seems like, well, that's, you know, if, you, if you're managing disease, you should, you should have those technologies, Right. But, um, but, but there's still a lot of uh, guys that aren't, but then you even get beyond that. Like you talk about my biography and then you talk about, um, you know, uh, dark adaptation testing and MPOD testing. And, and so how have you looked at, um, it seems like one of the challenges with a lot of practices is they're trying to see more patients in less time and then getting to all these discussions really is a challenge. So how have you allowed your, your practice to be able to incorporate all these technologies with still keeping the patients feel like your, your flow is efficient and still being focused on, on what maybe they think is the most important thing for that's bringing them in. Right. Absolutely. Great question. Um, well, to your point, the, the technologies we have to be more efficient are really what we hang our hat on. So for instance, in pre-testing now, we actually have an instrument that uh, takes seven major medical findings off the anterior segment of the eye in 80 seconds. So mm. um, my pachymeter broke um, a couple years ago and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need a new pachymeter. I'm at one of the, the meetings and um, a longtime friend that had moved into a different position 
with the company that I got this technology from, Mm -hmm. um, said, you know what, there's this great new instrument, looked at it. I only needed a pachymeter, but it takes pachymetry. It takes, uh, it measures aberrations. Um, It takes K readings, of course. It takes refractive error. It it takes uh, pachymetry across the whole cornea. It gives me... a, a tomography. So it gives me the whole anterior. I tell my patients, I get, this is an ultrasound of your whole anterior segment. Mm-hmm. I can see the anterior chamber angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with mm-hmm. the, with the uh, non-contact tonometry and having the pachymetry, all of that in the topography is all on one screen for me. So mm-hmm. in that 80 seconds, I'm capturing all that information. And then we take wide retinal imaging. So before I walk in the room, I know what their anterior segment looks like. I know their refractive error. I know their corneal readings. I know if they're at risk for glaucoma. It also gives me a retroillumination of the lens of the eye so I can mm. see if there's early cataracts forming. Mm. So that has really empowered us. Knowing Right before you know, I walk in with the patient, that's empowered uh, me to take more time with the patient to talk about what's important. Number one, uncover medical conditions. And even though it Mm -hmm. may be their primary care eye exam, we finish that primary care exam, but then look at all their risk factors. And, you know, I tell docs, you can't do everything at one visit. That's what's cool about medical optometry. You know, identify the high risk, um, you know, examination uh, with what you find that's high risk on exam and then, you know, reappoint the patient for that. But that has freed me up time. Also, uh, we we have an automated refracting system. And so I've handed mm-hmm. off um, a lot of the refractions to some of my techs, my higher functioning techs that can do that for me. So uh, sometimes I even have the you, their spectacle correction even before I walk in the room. So um, yeah. on all new patients, we've decided we feel it's so important to talk about prevention that any adult patient who's new to our practice, we measure macular pigment optical density and we don't charge them for it. We say mm-hmm. it's so important for us to know this score, to know how well your macula is being protected, that we took this at no charge. And again, those efficiencies in the equipment I have um, has helped me with the time management to be able to do that. And so then um, when, so if we're going to talk about MPOD measurements, um, do you find that that it's repeatable and you you can really rely on on the testing outcome? That's been one criticism I've heard of MPOD is that uh, some of the measurements aren't as predictable as they'd like or as repeatable as they'd like. Have you found that? No, you know, I, I really sometimes just like anything, right? Sometimes you get that wonky K reading and mm-hmm. auto refraction reading that you just know doesn't make sense. And so that occasionally happen on an MPOD test also. But again, a well-trained staff, um, it's rare that happens. Um, and again, it's just a great entree to talk about why I'm prescribing your spectacle lenses with all the filters in there to protect mm-hmm. you from blue, violet, and ultraviolet. Um, in that one test, I can have, you know, lead into that discussion. And I, we do find that it's, it's repeatable and reliable. Um, and what's really awesome is we have talked for many years to patients about how they move their body and what they put in their body, especially what they mm-hmm. put in their body, right? Because it all starts with our diet and nutrition. Um, and so um, there's not a better way to see if diet changes improve MPOD or if I get the patient on a nutraceutical. It's an excellent way to have. That's the only way I know if it's really working mm-hmm. for the patient, right? It's only mm-hmm. a tangible way I, I know other than making sure their macula is healthy. But again, I, now I have this number um, and I have a goal to set for a patient. 
Yeah. So then when um, I think I think there's a couple points that I want to step back on is is that I, my you know um, sort of my my wheelhouse has become helping doctors understand the value of their services through specifically through their medical services that they're that they're utilizing. And one of the things that I think um, happens all too often is that um, we're sort of I don't know if we're geared toward it. Or it's it's sort of a, a training. I don't feel like I was trained this way, but um, but I, I get the sense that a lot of docs just try to do everything. You mentioned this before. They try to do everything during that comprehensive quote unquote routine exam. So if a patient comes in, and um, we have an extern in our practice right now, and she she tried to do it today. She you know, a patient came in and she was concerned about about something, and and rightfully so, and she wanted to you know she wanted an OCT and and. You know, it was just like on count count finger, the patient was asymptomatic, but on count fingers, they noticed a few areas that was harder for them to see. They could see them, but it was harder for them to see than other areas. And so she right. she obviously wanted an OCT right away. And this was his, you know, quote unquote routine or comprehensive exam. And then wanted a uh, and I said, Well, you know, what else would you want? And she said, What about a field? I said, Yeah, that's a good idea. This is you want to get it all done today. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, that let's the patient's asymptomatic. Um, we can always do this next week. You know, we can, if we start doing it now, it's going to bog down our schedule. It's going to be more complex with, with billing and explaining things to the patient on this and that, you know, we can take care of all of this by separating it out into a follow-up visit. And so I think your point about utilizing your full examination or your comprehensive eye examination to identify problems and then following up with those patients and using their, using their benefits to their benefit right with with their medical benefits is something that our profession really has to get better at doing and and i think when you try to do too much within that comprehensive eye exam it actually means that you're going to do less over time i actually recently have started coming to this conclusion that when um when doctors try to address all the things at one time in one visit they wind up not addressing them as completely as they ought to and then that, and I, I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it. You know, if I try to do everything in a comprehensive exam, plus a dry evaluation, plus a glaucoma evaluation, I'm not going to address anyone as nearly as completely as I need to than if I have that patient back at separate visits. And so it's just a total mindset shift, I think, for, for people in our profession. Was that a challenge for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, anytime you you have a paradigm shift um, in your practice, um, it's always more of a challenge, right? Because you know we know, oh, you know, the patient will like me if I they don't have to come back, right? And um, you know, I I just want to get it done for them now. Um, And certainly, if if we can, to your point, like that patient, if they did have something that was even you were more concerned about, you would work that in your schedule. But I find it does two things. You know, to to your point, you're increasing efficiency when you identify quickly, you you give the patient a synopsis and the why you need to see him back. And then it makes that next appointment more impactful for the patient and the doctor. Yes. Because yeah. to your point, I'm not going to have time. I'm going to be rushing and then maybe forget this or that. Um, so it really drives home to the patient, wow, you know, doctor's concerned. Um, so that concerns me too. And then doctor's going to take more time with me. Um, at that next visit. So it, it's just a win-win for the patient and the practice. And to your point, you know, in a comprehensive eye exam, if the patient's in ma- on a managed care plan, 
you know, the reimbursement, you know, barely, barely covers your tech time and your, um, and your time. So you need to, from a practice management standpoint, maximize their medical benefits for good reason. Yeah. And it serves them better because you're able to spend the time that, that needs to be devoted to managing that specific condition. And, and I think also, right. you know, um, like you brought up that, that there, there's, I think some concern among doctors that there might be some pushback from patients on, well, I, I you know, they're used to come in every year for their, their annual. And, and certainly we try to do everything we can do. If we know, if we can plan for something, you know, if I know a patient's coming in, um, and maybe I'm seeing them every six months and I, and let's say they're a glaucoma patient, well, I'm going to plan for some of that stuff. But sometimes there's unplanned things and you just right. don't have to do it all at once. And um, and I think that's that's really important to to kind of wrap our minds around and, and sort of get out of the habit. And really, I don't know that there's any other profession that does that. I mean, I really think that we're one of the only professions that, that tries to just do anything that we possibly can do on that full examination so we can only have to see that patient one time a year because we're so worried about what happens if the patient has to you know, use their medical insurance or whatever. Um, I just don't see other professions doing that. Oh, exactly. You know, one of the examples I love to use is dentistry, right? You go for your your um, dental checkup, yep. right? And they find something and, and they tell you, oh, we need to address this. Well, guess what? It's that doctor can't even do it. Your general dentist, like there's the periodontist, but then there who who does gum disease, right? But then there's the guy who does your root canal, right. and then and then there's the orthodontist, of course. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how many dentists are yeah. there for each little thing that I have? Yeah, so that's right. you know, and and that's a model that patients are used to. So yeah, we just it, it, I think I you know I tell students especially and other docs we have to get over ourselves half the time, yes. right? Yes. We of, of what we think the patient uh, feels or wants, and just do what's right for the patient, and it all works. So Pam, tell me about, um, you know, your, your pretest process seems to be pretty locked down. If you're talking about 80 seconds to get pupillometry, topography, um, Ks, refraction, pachymetry, um, tenometry, um, and then some other aberration stuff, 80 seconds for that. You maybe have two mm-hmm. minutes for uh, some sort of wide field imaging, whether it's Optos or, or Claris or, or something else. And, um, is that your battery of tests and your MPOD? So, you know, right. So if it's time, a if it's a new patient, right? Because it's because we don't charge for the MPOD, we have about ninety eight percent acceptance mm-hmm. on new patients with MPOD, um, and so that does take a few minutes there. Um, but again, we feel that that few minutes is important because of the impact of everything else I do when I prescribe glasses and contacts mm-hmm. because it's all about their macular health, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's the entree into the medical part of what we do. Absolutely. And then um, we, we try to keep, you know, like any good practice, you try to get the patient through and done with me under an hour, right? So that they get to the optical and they're not there much longer than that. So our goal from start to the doctor finishing is 45 minutes yep. total. Now, obviously, when, you know, when the staff's with the next patient, I'm moving, you know, working someone up, I'm, you know, finishing someone else. So we feel that's really efficient, but we really try to hone in on the technologies that will make us more efficient to get that patient on a comprehensive visit through in under an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Um, so, so then let me, let me ask you then. So first, I think for our listeners, um, 
you know, Maculogix and AdaptDX are are sort of you know new technologies to a lot of people. They're they're, they're just hearing about it or just starting to see what it does. You know, um, and I think it's um, I think it's very interesting technology for a number of reasons, and we can talk about that. Um, and I want to get back to some of your other protocols with myopia control in a second, but I do want to explore. You know, how do you fit in a test that? can take longer? How are you incorporating? First of all, will you kind of give me an overview of dark adaptation? I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to hear it. And then why that's important for predict, predicting patients who will develop macular degeneration over time or who will develop actually clinically um, identifiable macular degeneration as opposed to subclinical. And, um, and then how do you incorporate that into your practice flow and, and utilize that data to change patients, um, to change your your treatment process for the patient. Yeah, yeah, great. So first of all, dark adaptation testing, um, to me, every primary care medical office needs to have it because of how impactful the test is for all our patients 50 and over that we know are at risk for AMD. So we know time's a risk factor for everyone. We know females uh, get macular degeneration at twice the rate of males. And then we know our diabetic patients, our patients with cardiovascular disease, um, family history, smokers, right? Um, all, all of those are risk factors. Think of how many patients, I've been practicing 31 years, 27 years in my old, own practice. <laughs> I'm in my getting into my late 50s. So I'm that demographic, right? Um, yes. So think about how many of my patients are in that demographic, number one. And we know now with excellent evidence-based multiple studies, um, science, that dark adaptation testing is 90% specific for subclinical AMD. So up to three years, and I, I put a little asterisk on that three years because the studies went three years out. It may be longer than right. three years, but they right. ran out of funding. Um, but up to three years before a patient has one letter loss of vision or I see a structural change, I know. 90% with 90% certainty if they have poor dark adaptation that the process has started. So that is key. Um, and that's a lot of patients in a lot of practices, right? So yeah, now and, that and I there's can- There's a lot of studies too. I mean, the, the crazy part, Pam, is, is um, you know, I really dug into it deep. Um, and, and there's a lot of evidence that um, about what you're saying is actually true. It's not just, you know, it's not just one study here or, you know, uh, you know a, a study that is um, a small study. I mean, there's big studies that really correlate all of these things together and kind of lump them together. Uh, so I think that's really important. Right, right. So, so lots of my patients at risk, right? I have two younger associates. They usually see the younger patients. I've been practicing, you know, a long time. So it's, it's a big chunk of my patient base. So now anybody who has a night vision complaint, mm -hmm. and we've trained our staff, if you're 50 and older, and you're complaining about night vision, automatically, that's that means you're going to get a dark adaptation test. It's not going to be at that first visit, most likely. Okay. Okay. It's going to be at a subsequent visit. But my techs know, if they have someone 50 and older, if they don't ask them if they have a problem with night vision, then shame on them. They get the backhand yeah. at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, but we, we joked about it. But it was a paradigm shift for us. So everyone 15 and over, make sure they get that question asked to them, number one. So um, let's say a patient, 20-20 vision, their retina looks great, no family history, but they have that complaint. I'm going to tell them that 
this test can pick it up early. You have this complaint. Sometimes it's just due to normal cataract changes that we all get. You don't have a visually significant cataract. It might just be that. But you know what? Now that we have a tool that lets us know for sure with great certainty, we're going to see you back for this medically billable test because it's medically necessary because you don't see as well at night. And the diagnostic code for that is acquire night blindness. Right away, you have a medical reason and then we would reschedule the patient for that. Now, obviously, if they had other risk factors too, we, w- we would talk about that. But um, what's really neat is the test is so specific for subclinical macular degeneration that normal cataract changes don't affect it. So I've actually right. changed my cataract workup protocol. So someone who does have a visually significant cataract, Every patient before they see the surgeon gets dark adaptation now for me to determine is the night problem totally the cataract or is there subclinical AMD? Because guess what? I don't want to put a multifocal lens in someone who has subclinical AMD. And there was a paper that was written in 2017 um, presented at Wills, uh, Dr. McKeague. She's in in a high volume um, cataract um, surgery practice. And everyone they thought that... um, that would do well in a multifocal lens, there was a subgroup that came back complaining that Mm. they didn't like their multifocal implant and they couldn't figure out why. Well, they ran dark adaptation on them and found that the vast majority of those complaining had subclinical AMD. So we see every cataract patient now we reschedule for an OCT and a dark adaptation. And sometimes if I don't find anything on the OCT and they have normal dark adaptation, I, I'm happy to write the OCT off, but I want to yeah. know before that patient goes to surgery that there's nothing brewing um, from a functional standpoint and a structural standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that has been, you know, I think the way that you're doing it in a, in a practice really makes sense um, to, uh, from a patient flow standpoint. In, in our practice, same thing. It's really a challenge for us to take that history up front and then implement it at that comprehensive exam or that kind of annual exam, especially if you're doing other tests at the same time because it does bog you down. The right. way you're describing it is, it, <laughs> excuse me, and that's exactly what we've done is the way that is what you're describing it is that it, you're just doing that test. And then you can just look at the numbers and and know... Um, if that com- if at least a component of their night vision issue is related to to their macula as well, right. and so then moving forward, you've had this technology now for three or four years. Yep, yep, a little over three years now. And so so let's say a patient has the night vision complaint. They've got um, they've they, and they have some mild cataracts, but they're not ready for surgery yet. Is this a, a um, a process that you are repeating then annually? And if so, are you scheduling that at the same time as their their kind of annual follow up, or are you still still scheduling that at a separate visit? Yeah. So yeah, great great point. So right, let's say it's a clean dark adaptation. Um, we will see you in a year. We definitely will run dark adaptation testing every year. Mm-hmm. And again, depending on if we know, you know, if we're pre appointing a year ahead of time, we can set it up on. Um, a day that we do dark adaptation. So we've dedicated Mondays and Fridays to a lot of our special mm. testing. It just makes it easier. Mm-hmm. So then we would put the patient knowing that it w- we may want to be more efficient and do it on that same day. We would schedule pre-appoint them on those days. So we'd have the flexibility mm-hmm. to do that. But again, now let's say a patient is positive. Now that's a whole different protocol. I'm definitely going to see them 
uh, depending on what else other risk factors they have, um, either quarterly or biannually. Yeah. Yeah. And have you, have you had it long enough now to see patients as they, you know, that are, so one of the things that I, I'm almost certain of is that patients with category three AMD mm-hmm. um, or worse, uh, they are, they're going to be at best uh, a delay of, you know, 14. So just for our listeners who aren't aware, like normal is six and a half minutes or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can almost predict if they've got intermediate AMD or worse. So category three, category four, they're going to be in the teens, if not 20, 20 right. minutes. Right. So um, are you, are you even, are you still testing those patients? Um, what are you doing once they get over 20 minutes? Um, you know, what's, what's kind of your, um, your idea as far as that's concerned? Yeah. Or are you so, just using it with early? Yeah. So, so great point. We, we've been using it so early now. I'll tell you, I can, I could, I could think of the patients on one hand who are at that close to 20 minutes or, you know, they cap out at the 20 mm-hmm. minutes because we've utilized it for a while now and we're catching things so early. So if someone's positive, my next first protocol is we genetically test them. Um, I want to find mm-hmm. out what's the best vitamin. And in my mind, and I know this sometimes is a little controversial depending on the studies you read, but if they're in that 15% group, that AREDS formula um, didn't work. Mm-hmm. So we know from AREDS 2, that those were patients with known vision loss in one eye, and we wanted to find out the vitamin that helped them not get vision loss in the other. Well, 85% of the patients did well on the AREDS formula, but there was a 15% subgroup that didn't. So if you're high risk Mm -hmm. and you're subclinical, I want to know, are you in that 15% bucket, right? So the really interesting thing now that I've had the technology a while is I'll target the supplement. I'll talk to them about their habits. I'll talk about stop you know, if they smoke, quit smoking, all those other lifestyle changes. And I've seen their dark adaptation times improve. Um, mm-hmm. ama- and I've seen mild drusen um, on OCT yeah. improve. And I haven't personally done a study, but anecdotally, it's been, it's been a trend. And when I talk to other docs who've had it um, a couple years or more, we're all saying the same thing. And so it is so exciting yeah. Um, just like when electrodiagnostic testing came out, you know, visual VOC potentials, VEP, to catch, um, you know, glaucoma earlier on patients, you weren't sure if they had it. We know glaucoma now starts in the brain, right? So we're able to mm-hmm. catch those patients with a functional test early. Um, now it's really cool that we're able to do this now for macular degeneration. Well, yeah. So what, um, you know, cause I, I've gone back and forth, you know, as far as genetic testing goes and zinc and no zinc, um, what, you know, I, 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 it is really challenging, you know, as a primary care, you almost have to just pick a side, right? right. I mean, right. you know, you've got, you've got the, um, what's it? Awa's group that mm-hmm. advocates for, um, for genetic testing. And then the traditional AREDS group does not. Right. And then obviously they both sort of have these financial incentives. You know, I, I was at Academy, I don't know, three or four years ago. And, um, you know, I heard both of them talk. They basically, they didn't, they weren't on the stage together, but basically it was one hour with, um, with Awa and one hour with the AREDS group. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they you sort of went back for that. I even saw one early in 2018 or mid 2018 that he put back out. I will put back out that said, you know, cause a reds group was saying, well, you're picking and choosing, right. you know, your, your, your subgroups. And then he comes back out and says, no, we didn't pick and choose. Here's in a different analysis. So, you know, it, it is almost like you have to have just 
you have to look at it and say, okay, well, what do I think is is best? And you're you're having the experts on both sides with financial incentive telling you completely opposite stories. So, what was your what was your um, you know, the the trigger for you to say, yep, we're gonna we're gonna use genetic testing. Yeah. So I started doing it because to me, I rather err. I'm still talking to them about how to eat. I'm talking to them about lifestyle changes. So to me, I really feel that that 15% group's important and to get them on a targeted vitamin. So I, I fall on that side of the camp. And like you said, I know it's still controversial. But the cool part is I've seen patients I've had on zinc only. I've seen their MPOD go up mm-hmm. and I've seen their dark adaptation get better. Um, mm. You know, I've mm. had patients who just have been on A-red zinc free. Again, I... I haven't seen it be less impactful. So um, to me, the proof was in the pudding. And again, I, in my uh, smaller practice, I haven't done a a study on it, but I could just tell you what works for patients and um, it's working. So I'm going to continue to be in that camp until I have some compelling evidence to prove otherwise. Yeah, no, I think, I, you know, again, I think it's, it's very interesting and, um, and it really, when you get into the, uh, you know, you get into, so, so the way I've kind of read about these two groups is that, you know, the, the A-Reds group, anytime they sell a vitamin, anytime any, any vitamin is sold that it says A-Reds 2 or A-Reds on it, they're getting some sort of royalty for that. And so their, their goal, you know, if you, if you are cynical, mm-hmm. right, their financial interest in making sure that there isn't any genetic testing is that, it would maximize the number of patients that were just getting AREDs, period, right? No no change in formulation if there's no genetic testing because then everybody that's in category three or category four is going to wind up with an AREDs supplement. Right. Um, and then the other side of that is that, uh, is that the genetic testing um, testers have some ownership of genetic testing, right? So they have, you know, they have uh, reason to advocate for genetic testing. And so... Um, so that, that's sort of the cynical view, and I, I believe they're they're all scientists, and I believe they believe what they're saying is accurate. It's just hard when you have quote unquote experts on both sides. I think it's hard from a primary care standpoint. Like I said, you have to basically say, okay, well, this is what I believe. Like you've said, okay, well, I, I want to stop this as early as I possibly can because I want to keep you seeing twenty twenty until you are no longer around to right. see. Right, and and, and, and now uh, and now, Chris, and that we have this tool in dark adaptation to pick it up so early. I just feel because I talk to them about what they eat too, because to me it all starts there. I mean, you can't you can't just throw yeah. a vitamin at everything, although we know it's important to be on carotenoids. Um, but certainly, it's the whole package. And again, you to your point, you pick a camp, and I'm I've just had seen good results for my patients, and so it's working. Yeah. So then, tell me about that protocol. So so you've got so let's say you have subclinical AMD, which means for the for the for our listeners that haven't really heard this, this terminology before is basically patients who have a delayed dark adaptation, but no, um, no ophthalmoscopic or OCT findings because basically the, the lipid buildup um, in, in the RPE isn't large enough to actually form a druse yet, but it's large enough to actually inhibit the transmission of, of the uh, signal from the, the cones right. up to the vitamin A itself. across. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right, right. It, um, it, it impedes the vitamin A trans, trans, um, transferring the vitamin A for a healthy um, RPE. Yes. Okay. So, so that's what we would call subclinical AMD where the damage is occurring and the function is changing, 
but there's no um, ophthalmoscopic signs or OCT signs yet. Right, because it's so tiny, Correct. right? So even our OCT, the best OCT can't pick it up, but it's there. Yep. Right. Yep. And that's that's like, again, like that's not hypothesis. That's pretty well documented nope. in the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And so, so then you're taking those patients and then you'll genetically test them. Mm-hmm. Are you now, once they're delayed, do they now have a, um, a diagnosis of early dry AMD? Or is there another code you're yeah. using for subclinical? Yeah. So that's a great point. So my reason for running dark adaptation, again, they either have to have a dark a night vision complaint right. or they have to have peripheral drusen. Uh-huh. So it's not macular drusen. I'm like, oh, so you have peripheral drusen. We know that great it's in the periphery, but we know the presence of it alone is a, another risk factor. So the, that code can be used on genetic testing. So peripheral um, reticular degeneration can be used for dark adaptation and genetic testing. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's how I kind of um, get around that. And then depending on what I find with the patient, you know, if definitely if they have subclinical AMD, then I'm setting them up for a baseline 10-2 visual field, a baseline uh, pattern electroretinogram. Um, we've already done the OCT and the dark adaptation at that point because I usually run dark adaptation and OCT on anyone with a complaint or peripheral drusen that day, that same day. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm usually taking images the fir- yep. in their comprehensive eye exam, so I can't charge for an OCT. So right. we just kind of bundle it with that on the same day. Yep. And so the, and then genetic test them, and that's our protocol. And then, and then depending on what we find, what their genetic risk is, um, where they fall, and then get them on the appropriate supplement, then depending on how the other tests go, see them either quarterly, but minimally bi-yearly. Yep. Okay. Okay. And then, um, and so if, if we go back then, so that sounds like a, a pretty reasonable protocol and it sounds like a very preventative protocol. There's not many, I, I mean, I know you kind of run in in some of the high performing circles in, in, in the sense that like, a lot of times people, what I mean by that is that a lot of times people where they sort of get in this preventative mindset, they're starting to run with people that are in that mindset. But I can tell you that mm-hmm. you probably see this within your network as well within Vision Sources that um, there are some people that are like, yes, I'm, I'm all on board. I'm, I'm all about prevention. And then some of us still are saying like, well, I'm about prevention, but um, this is real. You know, this is um, a, a really um, bigger step. It's a different mindset than I've, I've had. So what what are your um when you go out and you're you're uh, talking about this you're talking to other doctors um what do you think the numbers are uh that are kind of embracing this uh this sort of mindset in in terms of true prevention of AMD or capturing AMD super early Yeah that that's a great question everyone I talk to about it gets it but there's always mm-hmm. this, like, I'd say for probably mm. about 60% of the people, 60 to 70% of the people, there's like, I get it, but, yeah. you know, I don't have room for that. But how do I work that in my protocol? But, you know, cost this much. Yes. You know, there's always the but. There's always a reason um, not to. Um, and, you know, I think that's with anything, right? Uh, yep. When something's new, I, the more doctors that embrace it, and the more we show our colleagues and have good success with catching our patients uh, so early, 
it's going to eventually catch fire. That's what's exciting like about myopia control now. You know, yes. it's been around a bit, but now you hear about it. It's the sexy topic at all the meetings. I just gave a talk at Vision Expo East last week. My room was filled. Yeah. Um, because in the topic was just myopia management in private practice. Yep. Um, and the room was filled. Yep. So um, it's, it's that, that's starting to be sexy. I want AMD to be sexy because it is so amazing for what we can do to prevent vision loss in this age group that's highest risk. So it'll eventually become sexier, but it's just going to take time. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, yeah, the same thing. I did a myopia control talk last year at AOA. And, um, and the room was like, it was my first talk, first thing in the morning, and the room was packed. People were spilling out the back of the room. Um, and it wasn't me, it was the topic. You know, I mean, right. I did, I think, four other lectures. It was you, Chris. Lecture. It was you. Ah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I'd like to think so. But, but the reality is, is that I think it's a topic and people are excited about it. And, um, you know, I think as far as, um, I think you're right. I think there there does, you know, there, there's sort of that curve that you see with kind of early adopters and then still people that are on the early side of that. I think most of the vision source practices that that we see are sort of on that early side, maybe not the early adopters, but they're that second wave in. And then it takes a really long time for the rest of of people to kind of come come through. But I think the more, you know, as as we always talk about within vision source is that rising tides elevate all ships. And right. so the more people are talking about myopia control. And that's what we've seen in our practice is that, you know, I've been talking about it for years and, um, and now, you know, patients are coming in and, you know, I think there's a couple other people that are, are having discussions with their patients around, around it. And eventually we're going to see that that's, uh, that's not something, a discussion is completely new to parents anymore. Right. Well, to your point, so, um, a little over a year ago, I wrote, um, they asked me to write a piece, I, I think it was for review of optometry optometric management, one of them. And, um, you know, when when you parents Google anything, some of our articles in our journals come up. I've had a handful of parents, because my emails on those articles, reach mm -hmm. out to me from other states, say, oh, mm -hmm. my doctor didn't talk to me about it, or um, they told me this, and I'm not quite sure, and I read your article. So my point in saying that is I love when patients get the message, as long as it's a good message from our yeah. industry partners or just Dr. Google, you know, they, they see one of us, you know, your talk or an article you may have written. Um, I love that because when a patient's driven in, because it's a good message, um, it's awesome because now we have our platform set up for us yes. uh, to, to give them the, the correct information on it. I know a lot of doctors sometimes especially with contact lenses early on when some of the our industry partners were um, sending messages to getting the patient information and sending them, mm -hmm. um, you know, information from their company and doctors would get mm -hmm. all upset like, oh, why yep. are they reaching out to my patient? They're going around me. I'm like, yep. reach out. Is this a good message? Yay. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, if they come in asking me whether you whatever they're asking me about is it, it pertains to them or not, I'm going to I'm going to lead them in the right direction. So the right. more our industry partners can help us, because obviously in our practices, we try to cheerlead as much as we can, but we don't have the resources um, and the reach, the marketing reach that some of our industry partners do. So I'm all yeah. for that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, so then I I, uh, I want to kind of um, I may mean, I can't believe we're we're like almost an hour deep into our discussion already. It's it's gone fast, um, yeah. but I do want to kind of take a step back to sort of the beginning discussion that we had. And I had a, a discussion a couple months ago now with um, with uh, Tom Quinn about myopia mm-hmm. control, and and I wanted to sort of I hear you Tom. mentioned your oh he's awesome he's yeah. awesome. Um, just a, just a good dude, you know? Right. right. Um, yeah. I mean, just that, yeah, it was a fun conversation to have. And he, um, do you know, his daughter has a podcast? Yes. Um, she does like you and she got, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she's great. She's awesome. I've done, yeah. I've actually done some of her recipes from her. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, so anyway, um, but, but so we were talking about this and, and you mentioned you had a protocol developed. So can you kind of give our listeners as sort of the last idea um, that we want to talk about tonight? Can you kind of give the listeners sort of an idea of what your protocol is when you're utilizing different um, different treatment options? Um, kind of what? Well, who are you using for your compounded um, atropine? Sort of right. all those kind of things that would be helpful. Sure, sure. So you know the three tools that we have to manage myopia are low dose atropine. Uh, distant center, soft multifocal contacts, and orthokeratology, right? So I look at where the patient is. Obviously, the younger the patient, um, contact lenses may not, parents and the child might not be motivated for that. The older the patient, usually they want contacts anyway, right? If they're making a jump of a diopter or more in a year, definitely have that discussion. Look, you've had this jump. We need to start doing things the earlier we treat, just like with any medical condition, mm-hmm. the, you know, the better outcomes we'll have. So um, it just, it really is what fits into the patient's lifestyle better. So my low-dose atropine patients, which are the fewer, the two things, parents, some parents freak out when you talk about yep. drops, right? Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, so I have just a handful in in the atropine, but it is, I will tell you that handful are usually the younger patients where parents just are reticent with contact lenses. And so when I tell them it's low dose and that there's not a lot of side effects and give them all that, then they're on board. We have, we're fortunate I'm in the Chicago area. So there's actually two pharmacies within 10 miles of my practice that compound because not a Mm. lot do. Um, and so it costs my patients in my area. Um, the closest pharmacy is about seven miles away and it's about $45 for a, they give them a 10 ml bottle, I believe. So mm-hmm. that lasts a little over a month. So it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. cost effective for parents yeah. and we've had great success with it. Um, you know, they, parents put it in at night before bed, before, right before they go to sleep. So there's, you know, if they get a little sting or whatever, um, or a little redness, they're going to sleep. So that that's not yep. an issue. Um, and it's done a, a, you know, a great service for us. Um, I find that my, my kids who are really athletic, um, just like our, our real go-getters athletically, um, or swimmers, ortho K fits in great, right? Yep. Cause they just wear that lens or night or the younger patient where maybe not mature enough to handle wearing a lens to school all day. Parents have the control where they can help yep. the child with the lenses, put them in at night, take them out in the morning. So again, if that works out into the patient's lifestyle, 
how cool is that? And then usually yep. it's my older patients, teens and older, that the distance center um, soft multifocal just works out great. What I love now is we have a daily disposable option. Yeah. Um, you know, so happy about that. 85% of our patients enjoy the health benefits and the convenience of, of a single use lens. And so now um, there's only one company right now that, that has it on the yep. market in the U.S. by VTI and that that's the natural view. Um, and so that's been working out well in the practice. So we've taken some of our monthly wearers in good lenses, but now wanting to just getting them a healthier alternative and switching them into that. Super excited when the MySight, um, it will be coming soon, hopefully from Cooper. That's available in Canada and overseas. That's another single use distance center multifocal lens. And they're seeking FDA approval for yeah, myopic control. Right. So yeah. super exciting. And and thank you for bringing that up because the first thing you have to tell parents when you talk about moving yep, forward with right. treatment is this is not FDA approved, but the science is so compelling that we are not waiting for a governmental agency to approve it because as doctors, we know this is what be- what's best and we're going to move forward. Uh, but parents, yeah. you need to be transparent about that. Yep. Well, I agree. And, and I think the other the other side of that coin that's important to just for the people that are still maybe skeptical about implementing myopic control is, I mean, think about the the amount of treatments we have right now that are not FDA approved. I mean, AREDS 2 is not FDA approved, right? Right. Uh, I mean, there's there's not FDA approval for using steroids for dry eye. There's not FDA right. approved. I mean, so you can you can kind of look. There's a ton of stuff in eye care that's commonly done that's accepted as standard of care that's not FDA approved. It's just you know you need to communicate that. Right. Exactly. Especially when you're talking about a pediatric population, course, right? Yeah, the more transparent you can be, the better. You just uh, there's nothing worse than a mom, especially any parent, right? But a mom that's not happy with you. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you just want to be very transparent. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Pam, this has been a. I mean, I, I, honestly, this uh, this hour has gone by super fast, and I uh, we could probably have another hour or two hour discussion. And um, and I'd love to have you back on, but I do want to be respectful of your time tonight. Um, anything? Any other key points? Any other key takeaways of of myopic control or early treatment of AMD that that uh, we didn't cover that you think the listeners should should kind of think about? Yeah, I think we covered a lot and it was so great to to chat with you tonight. And like you said, the time did did fly. It's always it always flies when you're talking about good things, right? Yeah. But um I, I guess my parting message would really be whether you adopt um, you know, dark adaptation testing for catching subclinical AMD or decide to move forward with a myobia management program in your practice, um, if you don't do it, at least educate your patient that it's an option and refer to a colleague that does. Um, it's just so sad that a lot of times in, um, especially in, in uh, optometry, we don't refer to mm-hmm. other optometrists yep. Um, yep. With, for fear of losing the patient. Um, you should fear more the patient finding out that there's something that could have helped them and you didn't tell them. I think a patient is much more respectful uh, of you when you tell them their alternatives and, and are transparent and say, you know, we just don't do this yet, but my colleague does. And if it's a good colleague, they will not take your patient. They will definitely refer that patient back for the annual comprehensive exam and just take care of what you referred them for. So yeah. the, the take home is educate your patients. An educated patient um, empowers them to really have that great vision for a lifetime. 